0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are a married couple, active LDS, Joe and Amy Pearson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. We're going to talk about tender stuff on this podcast. We're going to talk about Joe and his addiction with pornography. We're going to start with um, before he was married and his journey with masturbation. And just trying to understand that, they are going to talk about them getting married after Joe's mission. And Joe, um, for 15 years or so, 20 years or so, we'll talk about that. What is the 20, number of 20, 25. Yeah. Um, 25 years having a pornography problem within their marriage? Um, that has since ended, um, but they are willing to talk about this because we all recognize that there's many active Latter-day Saints that have a pornography addiction challenge problem and aren't talking to anybody about it and have no role models in their life like Joe and Amy. Amy's really a victim here too. We'll talk about the trauma that she's experienced being the wife of a porn addict. Um, you kind of hear wife of a porn addict and you would just naturally assume that marriage is ended. <laughs> Some of those marriages do end and your marriage maybe at times felt like it's ending, but it's it's not ending, it's a beautiful love story. And um, Joe and Amy are in their mid forties, <laughs> mid to late forties. <laughs> They're laughing because I've underaged them. <laughs> they uh, met at, I believe at Alta High School right. and were high school sweethearts. Joe served a mission in Mexico, in the Pueblo, Mexico mission. He owns a real estate, he's a real estate broker, owns his own brokerage. And um, they have six children, three that are married, one grandchild, they have a gay son, Joey. Um, That's how I first got to know the Pearsons. We'll probably talk about Joey. He's a high school senior Mm -hmm. in Utah County. Great young man. I think he's on seminary council. He is. And just came out on his Instagram post on National Coming Out Day, which was somewhere in October. October I don't know. October 11th. I don't know who gets to pick these days, you know, (laughs) who in the great day picker up there that gets to pick all these days. But there's probably some logic that some of my listeners know about why that's National Coming Out Day. Amy offered a beautiful prayer. We didn't record that prayer, but this couple has spent a lot of time in preparation for this podcast in prayer and thought, and it's a really tender subject. And I, my hope is that all of us will just have better insights to minister to those that um, have a pornography challenge. I had very little training as a YSA bishop before I started, and I Wish I had met someone like Joe and Amy before I served as a YSA bishop because they would have taught me things that would have helped me help others. And those of you that um, are working on pornography, I think that this podcast will help you as you hear Joe and Amy talk and give you hope and light and more understanding. Um, So that's kind of the introduction. Anything that I've said that's incorrect? No, I think you got it. You got it. All right. All right. One of the things that just as another thing to explain is their family knows about this. So this isn't like Joe and Amy um, just talking about this amongst themselves, all their children, except maybe their youngest eight-year-old knows about this family story. And there's some real blessings that are part of that. But let's start just with you, Joe. Um, Talk about masturbation. That's a subject we don't, we're even uncomfortable saying that word out loud. So talk. I don't
1: know how uncomfortable I was. I remember (laughs) as a... A teenager, my mom pounding on the door when my brothers were in the bathroom too long, talking about why they were in there too long. So,
0: (laughs) so in your household, it was we talked about that.
1: Oh yeah, my mom was very very good at sex education. And I've met your
0: mom and your dad, and they are awesome. That doesn't surprise me.
1: Fiery little thing, and I adore her and my dad.
0: They're great, Dean and Pamela. Pamela. Mm -hmm. So. Joe, yeah, talk yeah. to you're just a pretty typical kid growing up, and
2: so I, yeah, I grew up in Draper when Draper wasn't a cool place to to live. It was a little farming community, and uh, had a great childhood from the standpoint of played a lot outdoors, had a lot of you know friends in the area, and um, but I think uh, m- my story uh, and with masturbation, um, my experience with masturbation, the way it was taught to me, uh, and the way I perceived it was, um, I would describe it as a a kind of a shaming, uh, method. I don't think anyone was trying to do that. It was just, um, the culture of the time, uh, at least where I was growing up is it was, it was full of a lot of shame. And there, there wasn't in my particular family, we didn't, um, sex was off the table. That wasn't something that we spoke about. And, um, and so I didn't really have any sort of an education and I don't know probably help if I kind of told you the story of of how I was really um, began all of this journey. So when I was about 12 years old, um, my parents actually were going on a business trip for my dad to Idaho and uh, myself and my two younger siblings uh, were with me and we were going uh, to a, a, I'm not even sure which part of Idaho, but he had some business meetings there. And so um, the first night we stayed at the motel and my parents went, uh, to this business function and we just hung back. Well, I didn't have any, I mean, we had the tip you know, this is in the 1980s. Um, and we had, you know, channels two, four, five and 13. 13. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And so there wasn't, we didn't have cable television or anything like that. And, uh, that night at the motel, as I was flipping through the channels, and I think my, my two younger siblings both fell asleep. And quite naively, I ended up, um, turning the channel to a, uh, a movie that had a sex scene in it and I had never seen or experienced anything like it. And it was, um, on the one hand, it was something that I, I knew was probably, it was, it was bad. Like that wasn't something that I should be watching. And at the same time, there was something super compelling about it. And, um, I, I just like, it, it was, um, just stirring a lot of emotions in me. And, um, and that was a pretty defining experience. Um, at the time I, I ended up, um, uh, having an ejaculation. I mean, I was, you know, I'm just going to call it the way, just, just Sorry. be straight with it. So I had an ejaculation, uh, and was scared to death from it. Why did you think it was sin related at that
0: point or was
2: Because I didn't have any sort of an education, I didn't know what that even meant. I just thought that maybe God was punishing me. That's the truth of it. I thought maybe I had contracted some disease. Um, I I was, I was just so um, uneducated. I just didn't know. It scared me to death. The reason it was so defining is um, there was nobody that I felt comfortable sharing that with. Uh, Again, sex was not a topic to be discussed. And, um, and it, it, it really confused me and in the consequent years, um, masturbation kind of became, you know, a part of my life. Um, and I, I I was always that kid. If you asked my siblings, uh, and I, there's seven of us, um, I was always the one that was just really like loved going to church. I, I was very active in the church. Um. And I just believed that, you know, like I I was, I was very faithful, uh, and, and had strong feelings about the gospel and the church. And so, um, it began this double life. That's really what ended up happening because I had this, on the one hand, I had this problem with masturbation and on the other hand, I loved the gospel so much. And so I would, I would go to church on Sundays and I would read in my scriptures and I would, I would understand that it was a, bad thing to be doing, that I shouldn't be doing that. And I didn't know why I couldn't stop doing it. And so, um, it just became a, a part of my life. And, um, and from that, uh, that kind of started my journey of this double life that lasted for many, many years. Was there any pornography
0: during your, before your mission or was pornography just not available?
2: Yeah, there really wasn't much pornography that I even had access to, I think once or twice, you know, at a bus stop, there was an old Playboy magazine or something that, that somebody found. Um, but really nothing. Well, and you, that, you
1: also mentioned to me when we had gone through a lot of things that your sister's magazines were something that you looked. Yeah, at. Yeah. Just
2: like teenage magazines yeah. and stuff, but you know, n- not anything that you would. Did you consider. talk to bishops? So the part, two experiences that I had with bishops when I was yeah. pre-mission, um, And these were also defining moments for me. Um, and it was the same Bishop actually once when I was probably 15, 14 or 15. And then the second time, um, when I was about 18 years old, and both times I went in and just shared, you know, that I was struggling with masturbation and, um, I felt so bad about it. And, um, he handed me both times, uh, a copy of the book, Miracle of Forgiveness and, and told me to read it. And that would help me, um, to overcome this, this challenge. And if you've read it, um, it's, it's got, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. That's a tough book. It's no longer printed from what I understand and the church doesn't really uh, promote it in any way, shape or form at this point. But back in the day it was heavily used by a lot of bishops and, um, the challenge for me with that was that I I was a very black and white, very literal thinker when it came to my religion. And so we're taught that, you know, prophets speak for God. And I, I took that very literally. So Spencer W. Kimball was the prophet of my childhood. Same. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm reading this book and I'm internalizing everything that it says. And so it, it really, um, I can't remember
0: exactly what it says about masturbation.
2: Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. I mean, there's things, it talks about how masturbation can lead to, um, to, to being gay. Um, it talks a lot about sexual sin being next to murder and that, um, you know, it just, it just really, um, it's strong. It's very strong language. And for a young boy that's internalizing all of this and not really talking to anybody about it. Um, it just filled me with shame.
0: And did that make it easier? Did this, did hearing all that give you more motivation to overcome masturbation or did the shame, no. or did it bring you down? And
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of talk about it being a culture of shame and judgment. That's, that's what it felt like growing up. The second time that I went to see my bishop, I was 18 years old and I, I wanted to serve a mission, you know, with all my heart. And I was really trying to, uh, have integrity about that and make sure that I didn't go out with anything that, you know, was, um, that was going to prevent me from doing my very best. And so, uh, when I talked to him and he handed me that book and I went home and I, and I was reading it and I'll never forget that Sunday afternoon. Um, my mom who has since passed away, she, she, um, confronted me and she said, how dare you and she was doing it i mean I, you know she she was trying her best but what she said was how dare you do something that would cause you to have to go see the bishop and really like put a put a mark on our family name and boy talk about like just the feeling of of uh of shame it was pretty intense at that point and and really what it ended up meaning to me, um, was that God couldn't really love and accept me for who I was. I, you know, I look back and I was, I was tender and I was, I really wanted to serve. And I think, um, the message that I kept getting was that I wasn't, I didn't add up. I wasn't enough for God. And that, um, yeah, I definitely, I felt just not worthy of God's love and his acceptance. So I, um, but I just internalized all of it, Richard. I didn't talk to anybody. I just kept internalizing it. And that message just kept repeating itself.
0: Um, was it something that happened during your mission or did it less than during your mission?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I went on my mission and I just, I think because of this, I wanted so badly to kind of earn God's trust and his love and acceptance that I, I, I worked as hard or harder than anyone else out in the mission field. And I put, I put everything, everything I had into the mission. And no, to answer your question, it it didn't come up in my mission until about with just a few weeks left before I was to come home and had, I had uh, an experience. I was, it's, I was teaching a, a, a discussion with my companion and we were in this small little hut type home with one tiny little light bulb and uh, we're teaching this discussion. And I looked over and I saw this little cartoon magazine and um, and it had like some nude type of images in the magazine and compulsively without even giving it a thought. And this is after two years of, of really just serving the Lord, faithfully, I grabbed that and stuck it inside my, my bag, my backpack and took that back with me. And I ended up masturbating. That's and, almost. and that really, um, that really set me back and I felt
0: like a failure. Did you feel like all two years of not masturbating was
2: all lost in that last, all of it. Wow. I really, I really, um, Did you feel like your whole mission was lost? Yes. I felt like I, there was, a, there was, um, a teaching that was pretty prominent back then, at least in my world, was that once you sin again of the same sin, then all of those other times, like everything comes back to you. And you, it's as if you hadn't repented of it. And so, yeah. I remember a, a lesson, a Sunday school lesson when I was a teenager um, and again, very well meaning, well intended, but the, the teacher taught a lesson that week where he talked about a kid struggling with pornography that got in a car accident and died. And that because of that, that the best he could hope for was the celestial kingdom. Wow. And I, that was I was impactful, and I took that, you know, really to heart. Talk to
0: your 48. I'm 58. We're kind of in the same era. Um, talk to your younger self, if you could. You know, Talk it's you talking to teenagers, men and women, that um, have a problem with masturbation. If you could just talk to them on the <laughs> podcast. And, Amy, you've got some good thoughts here, too, so I'd love to hear you both talk to just this group that's, that has a, that masturbates.
2: Yeah. Um, boy. maybe
0: that's why I
2: say age, I did you know, yeah, single, sure.
0: single Latter-day Saints.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I look back today and I, I think, um, boy, if I could go back and just talk to that young boy and just, um, you know, just put my arms around him and just let him know, like, you're enough, you're enough. And, um, I mean, Amy can talk to, uh, you know, we've got a, a family kind of model that, that she found that we really instill in our children. You want to share that?
1: Yeah. So um, that was part of my recovery that I'll get to later about some of the recovery I needed to go through as being married to um, a porn addict. Um, and that came to me through a really dear friend who was in my mind, an emotional healer, life coach, whatever you want to call them. But it came from the affirmations that I started doing every day as I tried to find my self-worth again, um, find my value. And one of those affirmations is my worth is set and everything is an experience. And when I internalized what that meant to me and what it means to my children and to anybody else out there, is our worth is set with God. That price has already been paid through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's done. We're not making him suffer more or less by what we're doing every day of our lives. Our worth is set with God, with Christ, Heavenly Mother, whatever uh, God of understanding you have. Um, Your worth is set. Just like a parent, um, I don't feel like my child has to earn my love that's unconditional. The worth that my child has from the day they are born till the day they die, their worth is set with me. Right. And, and that's how it is with God. Our worth is set with God. We uh, feel like we have to earn it. And I think Joe's experience is pretty, I think normal for people to feel like if you don't hit all these marks, you're not going to make it. Um, And for me, understanding that I think we missed the whole mark of the atonement, right? Like it is about, it's done. He suffered for all of it. That making our worth set with him, right? As we repent, that means turning towards Christ. At any point that any of us turn our hearts, our eyes, our everything towards Christ, it's done, and I feel like people feel like it has to be a long process or we have to suffer longer or we have to, uh, feel pain for a certain amount of time for it to be, you know, enough. Um, this is gospel to Amy. Okay. So I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not preaching this anywhere, but from my heart and my understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ, because that's a huge part of my story the biggest part of my story is the savior is at my center. I would not have been able to be with this amazing man for 27 years through 25 years of pornography addiction through honest to goodness, a living hell. If I didn't know and understand the healing balm of my savior and that my worth is set And all of these things are an experience. We're down here for an experience. Some of those experiences are really hard. Some of those experiences are joyful and amazing. And some of those experiences are just that, an experience. And I think we put our value on them. We've put our worth on them. We put, um, you know, who we are around our experiences. And in my heart and mind, that's just not true.
2: Yeah. So getting back to that, I, I just think, you, you have to remove the shame, right? There's, there's such a difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is I've done something wrong. I've done something bad. Shame is I am bad. And, and that's, that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. And I didn't understand that. So every time I would act out or do something that I taught was wrong, I was taught was wrong. Like I internalized that and said, I am bad. I am not worthy.
1: Well, and you felt like I'm not going in, you know, in our culture or in our gospel learning and understanding, you're not going to make it to the highest kingdom. Right. And I feel like that's always given to people as a fear or a threat. Um, if you don't do this, then you won't get this. When in my understanding is it's about love. It's about Christ. It's about grace. It's about these experiences we have in life with God. But to ask, to answer your question about, um, masturbation and how we treat that in our home now, um, it's been a learning curve, right? Like when you, when you know more, you, or you learn, you know, better things, you do better better ways. Um, I think there was probably a time with our younger kids that are now the oldest ones, um, our older kids that we probably taught our sex education around very, really fearful or shameful things, right? Like, um, you shouldn't do this because then you're not worthy or, you know, things like that. Um, it's so different now, my talks and my understanding with my children, um, when Joe's pornography addiction, um, came to my understanding, it's not because I caught him, It's not because I saw something or found something. I just had a feeling through the spirit. Um, And and I want to talk a little bit about that going backwards a bit, and then I'll get back to the masturbation. Um, Joe and I were best friends. We always have been. We always will be. And that hasn't changed. What did change was that when Joe became addicted to pornography, I lost my emotional support system. He was unable to emotionally be there for me, to um, to be anything connected to me emotionally. Um, he was disconnected. He was withdrawn. And when you're very connected to somebody and that person disconnects from you or pulls away it's very painful you feel very very alone um and so and you may and, think
0: it's your fault that you've done something
1: wrong or oh sure or that I'm not enough for yeah. this person right they they don't need me or want me i feel abandoned you know um so with joe before his mission we dated in high school and um i don't know i think our dating was a little unique because before I met Joe, I uh, I was a wild kid for a little while—not a long time, but a, a little while. I experimented. Um, I felt like my mom and de- my mom was kind of controlling, and I wanted to get away from that control. And so I just kind of let it go, um, tried to figure it out for myself. I'm not a big rule keeper. Joe already knows that about me. <laughs> In high school, I lived on a golf course, and you know the sign that says "No Trespassing." Joe's like, "Oh." we can't go in there. And I'm like, I'm jumping the fence. Are you going with me? Um, and that actually happened a couple of times. His friends went with me and he didn't because he, uh, stayed at my house with my mom <laughs> anyways. Um, but so when, and we've been best friends, like on his before, like, so while we dated, um, uh, when we started to date, I considered him a friend and I noticed something really special about him really, truly like, um, we connected like instantly. And I didn't want him to be like all the other boys I had ever boyfriends or whatever I'd had, where it was pretty much physical, a physical relationship, not really emotional, to say the least. And with Joe, it was emotional. Like he actually asked me, what am I thinking? How does that make you feel? And I was like, what? You care about what I think you want to know what I'm, what I feel like, I connected to him so much that I actually didn't kiss him. I don't, we dated seven months before we kissed. That wasn't like me. Like, I think you're cute. Sure. Let's kiss. Um, but with Joe, it felt so different and special. Like I wasn't willing to lose him. I was not. And so we dated and had this sincere emotional relationship and we actually kissed right before he left on his mission. And then, I went up to Rick's college and he went on a mission and I continued to date. Um, but we wrote and he was my very best friend. So when he came home from his mission and 24 hours later asked me to marry him,
0: 24, 24 hours.
1: 24
0: hours, what kept you back, Joe? <laughs> I mean, holy 20... cow. That and I also,
1: at the airport. I also didn't want to be like the Saturdays warrior person that's standing at the airport. I'm like, Oh gosh, great. Now my life is so cliche, but it is what it is. And then nine weeks later we were married. So it was fast.
2: Well, one, one, one thing to mention there too, with that 24 hour engagement, and nine week marriage, I mean, we both had a really strong sense that we were in love with each other. And, and it was a really like, we were just best friends. Like Amy said, but there was another component to that, and that was like me um, coming off that mission, being feeling so defeated um, with how it ended and um, wanting to not have to struggle with that idea of masturbation in my life anymore. And so I've, I really believed that the sooner we got married, that I could just let that part of me go and I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. It's honest. It's really honest.
0: Um,
1: and so, um, just finishing my thought with that one is, um, so the first couple years of marriage, uh, life was awesome. I mean, I'm with my best friend every day. It's amazing. And then I noticed him starting to pull away emotionally. And all of a sudden he's not asking me how I am. He's, he's distant. He's somewhere else. He's not connected to me. And at this point we've got several kids, like, we had kids pretty fast within 6 months of being married i was pregnant and then our first three are within 4 or 5 years of each other they're quick anyways um and i and i didn't like is it the kids is it the stress is it what and i remember walking down the street one night coming back from a friend's house and the spirit really strongly saying to me joe's looking at porn right now and i was like okay So I remember walking in the house. I walked in the office, and it had a closed door to it. I opened up the door, and I just turned to him, and he had turned off the computer and kind of looked at me with glossy eyes. And I said, have you been looking at porn? And kind of like during the headlights, he was like, yeah. And my thought was, well, you need to go to the bishop. You need to go tell the bishop about that, and like don't ever do it again, right? Like it. It was one of those things like, well, that was hurtful and that wasn't okay. And I'm not okay with that, but you better go talk to the bishop. And he did. And we'll talk about his journey with that. But because we've been down this road for a long, long time, right? Like 20 plus years of our marriage has been about pornography and about our journey with that and what it's done to me mentally and emotionally Um, it's pretty deep, Uh, the pain and the trauma and the betrayal and the gaslighting and all of those words that you hear. It was, it was real. Um, It was hard. But to go back to your question about masturbation, I've learned so much about shame and about how the secret and shame stay in the same closet, right? Like if you're quiet about it, Your secret and your shame, they live there together. And I didn't want that for my kids. I didn't want my boys to feel so shamed about something that's happening to everybody, right? This is a normal part of life. This is happening to everybody. They're either exposed to it or they're feeling the effects of it. And so for me, having a relationship of trust with my children is pretty important. And being able to talk to my kids in a way about that same thing that happened with Joe about the spirit telling me he's been looking at pornography that happened throughout our entire marriage. I never caught him once. I never found it. I always just felt it. And that happened with my kids and it wouldn't be like, Oh, so-and-so is looking at porn tonight. It was more, this heavy feeling of something's not right in my house. Something is not right in my house and I need to figure out where it's at. And, um, actually that's how Joey came out to me. That story of when I'd go to my teenage sons, I would say, Hey, what's going on? I have this feeling like I've noticed you've been isolating or, um, is everything okay at school? Is everything okay with your friends? What's going on with your friends? I'm 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 feeling something's not right. Something's not okay. And after I feel from them what's going on and then saying, hey, I have this feeling that you looked at pornography last night. Is that true? They never lied to me. I don't don't think they wanted to keep it a secret. I think they wanted to share that in a place that they felt like was safe. And um, when Joey was 13... I had that gut feeling something's going on with Joey. So I went to his room, same thing, asked those questions. And then I said, so is it? I had asked him the question. He said, yeah, and we talked about it. And then I had a prompting. You need to ask him if he was looking at guys or girls. And I turned back around and I said, hey, Joey, was that guys? You were looking at or girls? And he kind of had those wide eyes. I'm like, gay porn or girl porn? And he's like, guys, and I saw this weight lift off his shoulders and I said, I know I've known for a long time since you were little. And he said, you have.
0: Joey's gay.
1: Yeah. And I said, yeah, you know, and that's not something as a little kid you're going to talk about with him. You're going to wait till he matures and figures that out himself. And so for us to have that moment and four years later, he comes out publicly But for three, four years, that was a, that was a discussion we were having a lot. And often, how do you feel? How does this make you feel? He went through a lot of different stages with that until he, he felt that confidence of who he was and who he was ready to be to everybody. So
0: great insights, Amy. Home run parenting moment with Joey (laughs) to ask that question and see the weight lifted off even though you knew that made things perhaps more complicated for you as a parent and knew Joey's road was harder. Um, if you had, I'm going to come back to masturbation Then I'm going to move on. Um, with, if you could have eliminated the shame, do you think it would eliminate the masturbation before your mission?
2: Maybe not altogether. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, I don't know, but it would have changed the way I would have experienced life. So, um, I Just, you know, it's, if we can take the shame out of it and if we can actually have, we can just recognize it for what it is. I mean, let's be honest, kids, it's part of the maturation process. We're experiencing that. And so, um, I think absolutely it would have changed everything about the way, because here's, here's the reality is that the more shame was involved in my life and the further it got, what it, what it really was doing was giving me this sense that if Richard, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't love me. And, and that's, that's enough to keep me from ever talking about it because I, I, my self-worth was so low because I just didn't believe I was worthy of God's love. And if you knew who I was and what I was doing, you absolutely wouldn't love me. That's why I love your
0: wife's worth. Your wife's statement, my worth is set. Just you know, I came at this from a YSA Bishop standpoint, and I I was just stunned with the range of feelings that the young men and some young women had on this. And I recognized that they had picked up stuff from family, from bishops, from society, or nothing. And they had concluded something about masturbation. And our church at that point kind of quit talking about it. There's not much in the Strength of Youth pamphlet. The Strength of Youth pamphlet doesn't have even the word self-abuse in there anymore, which is another word that we sort of adopted. And so I got kind of angry because I just recognized this lack of honest and accurate information that you're doing in your family is causing a lot of problems. And so finally, I just I did a Facebook post. (laughs) Um, I talked about masturbation on Facebook and I put for a mature LDS audience and then I ended up doing a podcast. But I basically, and I kind of talked to my, I still talk to my local stick president about this every now and then, but I said, you know, on a one to 10 scale with 10 being the worst sexual sin, which I think is selling children into sex trafficking. (laughs) um, I don't, you know, or being a sex trafficker, even participating, those are all kind of up there in the 10s. Um, and I kind of put, put this down in the one to two category. Um, and I didn't, and so I would still teach it's a sin. I would still teach not to do it. I would, but I felt like I wanted to take all the shame out of the young men and young women. And because I felt the shame was much worse than the sin and Satan's ultimate tool with masturbation wasn't masturbation. It was all the shame that you're describing that then led to a lot worse places for us spiritually, emotionally, emotionally. Um, and so that's kind of where I netted out is I used to finally just tell the YSAs and then I'd go into Elder quorum and, and release society and just kind of talk about it really objectively, really factually, and just say, I don't need you to talk to me about this. I don't feel like you need to confess this to me if you want to. Um, you, I'm glad to hear this. I'm not going to probe about it. I'm not going to make it part of our standard interview. Um, you work this out with the Lord Um, it's not something I need to be involved in. It's about a two, um, and kind of describe the things they ought to talk to me about. Um, and just kind of left. I didn't want to define my relationship with the YSAs about this conversation. I did a little bit at the first, but I just didn't at the end. So that's kind of where I netted out as a, as a YSA bishop and as a father of six kids, kind of managing this in our own home with my own sons. I wanted to, creative feeling where they knew how I felt about this and I'm glad to talk about it, but I didn't want to bring it up with them all the time. I just said, you can talk to me if you want to, you can talk to the bishop, you can talk to your older brothers, your younger brothers. This is kind of, you know, but I wanted to be like maybe your family, Amy, who were at least talking about it. Well, so I've just worried about this. I've worried about, masturbation um, and Satan's tool just to make us feel like shame that you're
2: describing that leads to a lot worse things. And, and really w- when you take that approach, you just take the air out of it. You take all the air out of it. And okay. now it's, now it's not a pressured thing. I mean the number, the one. To- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like when you just, you kind of say, Hey, look, this is part of growing up. We're not encouraging you to do it. Right. Like it's better that you don't, but most kids are going to at some point experiment with that a little bit, just understand like we love you unconditionally. And if you ever have this sense that you want to talk about something like that, come and talk to us. If it's something that's bothering you, come and talk to us. But I I really believe, and I think we both kind of feel this way is that, you know, we have an internal compass and if we're approaching life with my worth is set, everything's an experience and those experiences are going to help guide us in our life so if we have an experience that's making us feel bad making us feel disconnected or away from God right then then that's something to deal with and address or or to to lay off of but but to to just do it in a way that you're not shaming
1: yeah and you I could think... scroll
0: back to my earlier podcast if someone wants to listen to my thoughts on masturbation there's a podcast in there somewhere between around 15 and 20 you could listen to that and it's just me going sharing stuff and I don't know if I've shared this on a podcast. I had a bishop ask me at 12 or 13 if I masturbated, and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I knew I was having wet dreams, so I confessed to masturbation, and I was just having wet dreams, and that's how bad my education was about what was going on with me. Yeah. Richard, you bring, under- up a really so, good,
1: <laughs> you bring up a really good point about um, speaking the same language with a kid. When I was talking to Joey in that moment about pornography, his version of pornography was swimsuits, seeing somebody in a swimsuit. Okay. So him at 13, me asking about pornography, you got to be really aware of what it is you're talking about. When you're talking about masturbation and you're calling it a sin, they're already backed up against a wall saying, well, I don't want to tell you that I, that I'm sinful, right? Right. So I think we've gotta be really careful about some of the language and the words that we use. I had a young girl come into our house and said, well, it's a sin to kiss before you're 16. And I said, what? She's like, yeah, I've been taught it's a sin to kiss before you're 16. And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, let's be really careful about this word sin we're using and how we're describing it. It feels like a fear tactic in my mind, to be honest. And I said, kissing itself is not a sin. It's just not a sin. It, there's nothing about that. It's sinful, but in the context that it could be used, there's appropriate times to kiss and not kiss. Um, when you're talking about masturbation, are there times that are appropriate or not appropriate? Um, it could be very appropriate in marriage, right? Or not appropriate. But I think that's something somebody has to decide, but if they feel like it's a sin, that's not something that ever going to feel comfortable even in a marriage situation or anything and i and i think educating our kids about sex in a shameful way brings it right to the marriage bed which makes it really hard on a lot of couples to know what's okay what's not okay when you get to that point in your marriage it's about discovering that together it's about discovering that sexuality and that understanding together. And so I think sometimes we want to label everything and call it good or bad. But I, in my mind and my understanding, obviously there's sins, right? Like murder, you know, we've got the 10 commandments, but when it comes to sexual things, I think there's a lot of things that are really, really tender, really sensitive and really, a lot of shame used to describe those things in trying to teach our children about their own sexuality and sexuality is beautiful. We want to say that our bodies are here and our spirits are over here and they're at war with each other. Our bodies and our, and our spirits are one. They should be treated as one. Our understanding of our spirit and our sexuality should be one. They shouldn't be separate. God gave us this beautiful, amazing body. And guess what? It's a sexual body. It's made to create, it's made to experience, it's made to love, it's made to feel this incredible intimacy. And when you add pornography and masturbation into a mix that you feel you're divided in, right? That divides your spirit and your sexuality that you're really confused about what that's supposed to be like, what that's supposed to mean because now somebody else is telling you what sexuality is supposed to be. And so I'm hoping that Joe discuss a little bit about pornography and what that did to his sexuality, what that did to his understanding of his worth because I know how much it affected mine.
0: So let's go there. Just to, um, a comment, um, when the YSAs were getting married, I remember my own bishop, when I was getting married, my YSA bishop kind of talking to me what was appropriate or not appropriate in the bedroom. And I can't remember what he said, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's so long ago. But I, I've just heard different things over the years. So finally, I reached out to a counselor, LDS counselor, and said, what advice do you have that I should give YSAs? And, and she had some really good advice. She said, don't give them a checklist of what to do or not to do. But the, she's talked about the principle of, yeah, that you're you're having sex to have children, but you're also having sex to bring each other closer. And so whatever's going on there in their bedroom needs to be equally bringing you both together in an equal connection. And so that list would obviously be private, what one couple is doing and another couple is doing, and it may be different. But I, I felt pretty good about that advice, and so I didn't give the YSAs a list of what— sometimes they'd ask about oral sex. And I said, I'm not going to answer that. This is maybe the principle that you're trying to accomplish. A lot of the things you just talked about in a very positive way, but you need to talk about this and you need to decide what's equally bringing together in an authentic, wonderful connection. And I'm, and that's kind of where I left it. Um, But I I never had any training. There's nothing in the handbook that told me what I shouldn't say or shouldn't say. And I was reluctant to say much because I didn't want to, sort of give bad advice, but that's kind of what I started to say a little bit.
1: Right. I agree.
0: But let's go to, I'd like to spend some time having Joe talk about pornography within the marriage. Um, And I'd love to have Amy talk about trauma and just, you know, the tremendous emotional toll this took on you. and, And this is you talking to other women that are trying to heal from this. Some that are still in marriages like you are, and some that have stepped away from marriages because
2: of this. Yeah. So, um, after we got married, um, you know, I, I jumped in, I was, I was going to school. I was working a couple of jobs. Amy was working a couple of jobs. And, um, at some point, I don't even know if it was six months or how a year, I don't, I don't know. At some point along there, um, the internet was becoming, you know, a lot more prevalent and and popular and, and useful. And, um, at some point in that process, I ended up discovering this whole different world. Um, and, and what I didn't realize at the time was that, um, what I was really doing was I was numbing out. So there was a lot of, um, if you go back, if, if I were to go back to my past and and those experiences in my childhood and just I haven't really addressed this, but you know, my mom, um, had a a lot of emotional uh, difficulties and um, she was never diagnosed. I kind of think maybe bipolar, but it was certainly growing up an experience where as kids, we didn't know who was coming out of that room that day. And um, that up and down, um, just not knowing who I was going to get and what that was going to look like that day created a lot of stress on me. Um, and I was a quiet kid. Um, I had other siblings that probably, you know, uh, dealt with it in different ways, but for me, um, it continued to tell me that I was bad, that I had done something to cause her to be upset. And so there were a lot of unhealed wounds from my childhood and I didn't know at the time, but I had a lot of anxious feelings and a lot of negative feelings, self-hatred um, over a lot of these things that we've talked about. And so as you know, I become a, a husband and a father and all the responsibilities that come with that. Um, it was, a, it was a lot. and And I didn't handle it very well. And this, um, became an outlet where I could simply just escape and totally numb out and just forget all of that stress. And, um, so that's, that's really where it became a part of my life. And so for the next 20 plus years, it was on again, off again, it was this cycle Uh, I didn't know it was addiction. I had no idea it was addiction. I would never label it as an addiction. Um, All I knew was that I, something was broken. Something was wrong. Cause I didn't want to do it. Like there was this part of me that was like, it was again, it was this, there were two people living inside my head. And so it was this part of me that was, you know, I, I was good. I loved God. I wanted to serve God. I loved Amy. I love my kids, all of those things. But there was this other part of me that I couldn't explain why I kept going back to this. And sometimes it would be weeks and months and then I would return to it. And I'd say, oh, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. And then I'd go back to it and I'd do it again. <laughs> and Each time, I just felt a little bit worse about myself. It got to the point where I'd really resigned. I'd resigned myself to the fact that at some point in time, I was never going to be able to share this with anyone. I wouldn't be able to tell Amy about this because if she knew who I really was, she couldn't love that and so I knew I couldn't share it I knew that eventually I would die with this and I knew that I would end up in a kingdom celestial kingdom probably with people that couldn't control their passions and that Amy would be married to some other man eternally and that my children would be with them. And that was my fate. And that was the hell that I lived with for decades of my life. And every time, every time that I'd go back to that addiction, I was destroying the very person that I love more than anybody else in this world. It was devastating to Amy. And so it was very difficult to ever talk with her about it. So in a way I was, I was really, the first time that she brought it up, I was, I was grateful, I was glad, because I, I, wanted, I wanted peace. I wanted to get out of this in the worst way. So when she said, hey, you need to go see the bishop, I was all in. And uh, so I went and saw the bishop, and he pulled out the Book of Mormon, turned to Jacob chapter two, and he read how I was breaking the heart of my wife and my children. And how devastating it was to them. And knew that. N- nobody knew that more than I did. Like I knew that, that that wasn't something that I needed help knowing, but I know he was doing his best. He was trying. This was back in the mid nineties. And, um, I don't even know if the church had a program at that time, but, um, so he, you know, he said, come back in a week. I want to talk to you again we scheduled the time I came back. He said, how are you doing? I said, great. I haven't viewed any pornography. And I had, you know, I had all this weight on my shoulders and I had cleared it. I had been able to share all this stuff that was so scary for me to share. And he said, good now, never do it again. And he sent me away and, and I actually was excited. I was like, Oh, done. Okay. Now we can, Check. yeah, we can get back to life and loving each other and this beautiful relationship, and it wasn't but a few months later, probably that I was right back in the right back in that cycle and doing it again, and of course, this time I could never let anyone know, especially Amy, because it would destroy her if, after all that she knew that I went back. It's interesting. Yeah, that was the mentality. About um, I love the word numbing. Go ahead, Amy.
1: Yeah, um, it, I think it was just maybe a year or two later they had a speaker come to our ward in Heber. Yeah, it was a fifth Sunday, and it was a man and their wife, and they were talking about the effects of pornography. Right? Well, everybody was at that meeting, wanting to know, you know, what are the effects of pornography? Had all these statistics, all these different studies. And then at the very end he did something that was so shocking to Joe and I. And years later we found out, you know, from other bits of our friends, how, um, how amazing that meeting was for them too, that he said, I, I want you to know the reason I know all these things is because I've had addiction to pornography and his wife is sitting there and I'm like, does she know, you know, I'm sitting there like, He's telling us about this. And then she gets up and she talks about their marriage and they're staying together. And, um, up until this point, this had been going on with Joe for a year or so. And there were many times that I was so devastated asking him and it happened again or happened again. Um, I felt like I can't stay married to somebody that has a pornography addiction. And I prayed about it and I, I prayed so much. Like, do I need to divorce Joe? We have three little kids. Do we need to be done right now? And I was so devastated. And the answer was no, no, you guys are going to figure this out. It's going to be okay. Um, my answers obviously were throughout 25 years. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that, but um, this was the first understanding that I had seen that gave me hope she stayed with him there. They look like they're happy. Maybe it's possible. And I think that planted a seed in me and it planted a seed in Joe. Well, fast forward, let's do seven years. Okay. And during those seven more, seven more years, we've moved down to Salt Lake or uh, whatever, have more kids. I don't know. Um, And here's what's going through my mind, knowing that he's looking at pornography. My first thought is, oh, I'm not enough. He's not happy with what he's married. And I've had these kids. My body's changed now. He's not happy with me. I'm not pretty enough anymore. I'm not sexy enough. I'm not, um, I'm not enough. And this abandonment issue was pretty strong with me. Like at some point he's going to leave me, right? He's going to have an affair. Um, cause that's what they tell you happens. Like you go to the next level cause this one's not enough. And then you go to the next level. Um, and I, and I, I literally lived in fear every day of my life. One bracing myself for the next time that I would find out because I lived hoping that it would never happen again, but knowing it was going to keep happening. And I lived this life of fear. One, he's already disconnected from me. Right. Right. And two, I, I'm doing everything in my power to dig it out of him. Hey, how are you feeling? What's going on today? What's, what's happening? Like what happened at work? What, you know, I'm just digging for any bit of information I can to see where he's been. Has he been to strip club? I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. I have no clue. And so I'm constantly in fear and being detective. What, you know, like constantly in this, um, panic mode. Right.
0: And the tr- long-term effect on you emotionally.
1: For sure. And the part about that that I want to talk about is when you feel like, and this is the honest truth, I knew that I loved Joe more than he loved himself. And I wasn't willing to give up on him because I knew his heart. I knew him really well.
0: I loved Joe more than Joe loved himself. And I knew his heart, and I'm not ready to give up on that.
1: yeah, that that was the truth. And the other truth that I recognized is his integrity means a lot to me, and at that point, I wasn't willing to share these things with a friend, a mother, with anybody, right? Like, I didn't want anybody to think less of him.
0: Wow. Never because
1: there were two sides to Joe. There was this amazing dad and father husband that was there loving us, providing for us. And then when he'd view pornography, it's like the mask came up, right? He would distance himself. He would um, isolate. He would become irritated, agitated, kind of an angry version of himself um, that I was fearful of. Um, Not like he ever hurt us. No, Joe's a gentle person, but just fearful in his tone in his stress level in his, he would, he would say to the kids, I'm so frustrated.
2: I think that was the word that they described. Yeah. me. As. They
1: would, their younger years, they're like, dad's famous word is I'm so frustrated. And he would get, he would lose it like that fast. And so I found myself like making the house perfect, becoming OCD. Like meal's got to be ready when he walks home. I don't want him to be, have anything to be upset about. Okay. Kids, everybody clean up their stuff. The house has to be in order when dad comes home. We don't want to have And everybody smile, everybody, everybody put on their happy face. Dad's coming home, right? We couldn't really like live this life of being vulnerable or normal. We had to pull our stuff together fast because dad's coming home and dinner's got to be ready and the house has got to be ready and I've got to look good, right? I've got to exercise. I got got to pull myself together. Um, And, and during this time I've, I've had a lot of health issues. Mm because when emotionally you're not dealing with it it comes out in a lot of ways um
0: it's really a tough road to not be able to share your road with anybody
1: the most lonely world and road and you're going to church every Sunday and <laughs> putting on your happy face putting on your couple face putting on your putting on your pretense of everything's just fine with us because the reality is I was in love with him I I did love him it was the guy that came home in the mask that I didn't want anything to do with. It was the guy that was addicted to pornography that was breaking my heart. Um, and you. so it was this roller coaster ride, right? Like, be good and then crash, right? Like, my whole world comes back crashing down on me. And I feel this I'm not enough. He's, I'm not, I'm not going to be enough for him. And about that time, I started to have a real faith crisis about polygamy and the prophet joseph smith because here in my mind i'm thinking this is eternal law really so he gets permission to keep looking how's that supposed to make me feel like he's looking right now
0: i mean joseph smith being
1: no and i met my husband like so if this law is eternal what does that mean for a woman it made me feel so insignificant it hurt
0: be yeah finding other wives yeah it hurt me
1: that I'm not enough for him that now he gets an opportunity forever to go look for more and more and more. Like what is this insatiable desire that one person can't be enough for you?
0: Between how you're feeling a very logical link that I've never thought of and pornography in the next life and Joe's path and how that just add that doctrine of polygamy, if you believe it or not. Um, And I realized people in the church had different feelings about that could really add to your load.
1: It, it ended like it crushed me crushed because you. i thought does heavenly father not love his daughters does he not think that we aren't enough that there's going to be 20 of us that a man's ego or his glory is more important than my glory and it started me on a real path of trying to figure that out like why am i in so insignificant because i'm a woman because i was born female and so, um, Joe calls me a passionate person, <laughs> and I am.
2: That's what I love don't, about her. Don't it. change
1: because it became really important to me to understand where's my heavenly mother in all this. Where's she at? Is she a quiet being, or is there twenty of her? And that's why we don't talk about her. So I I came to study a lot of things, and Joe doesn't know any of this at the time that I'm. I probably read the Doctrine and Covenants probably 25 times. I still read the Book of Mormon every day. Like, it's so important for me to have a connection, to find answers. And it just became more and more hurtful that somehow my place forever was insignificant, that I could be invisible, and that I wasn't important. And so the pornography only added to those feelings of insignificance, and really me digging deep to say, what is woman? Who is she? Is she a mere help for the man? Is my life for the rest of my life to help him figure his life out? When do I become important? When do my needs become anything but secondary? You know, as a mother, you wake up, and you give everything to your children, to your spouse, And at some point, your tank is empty. There isn't anything left. And you find yourself very, very alone. And my journey with dealing this with Joe, my savior was my only friend and connection to that love and that healing. And every time, I would ask the Savior to heal me. He would. And I would give up the next day and have enough strength to put one foot in front of the other and go again. I can't tell you the times that I would put my kids for a nap and I would go in the shower and I would sob until there wasn't anything left to come out. And I would cry and I would go to my closet and I would just beg for healing and relief and I've had many incredible spiritual experiences of my ancestors on the other side that ministered to me in those what I call Gethsemane Gethsemane moments where my soul was so crushed and devastated that um, just trying to understand who I was as a woman um, and what all this meant for me but I also want to explain something about betrayal and trauma and gaslighting. So many of the times when I would feel that something wasn't right and that Joe had acted out, I would ask him and he, you know, like he said, he didn't want to tell me and it was met with. I,
2: I couldn't in my mind, I couldn't tell you because if I, if I did, then it would be over.
1: Yeah. And so for me, him lying to me, And I know he's lying to me. There's times in my journal where I wrote down, I know Joe's looking at pornography right now. I know it. And then to ask him and to hear him lie outright to me and to say, Joe, I know you have. And he's like, no, no way. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. You're crazy. And then all of a sudden you have this mental anguish of...
0: Define gaslighting.
1: Gaslighting is basically when the person... Joe is telling me that something's not true when it's absolutely true and almost manipulating it to look like I'm the one that has the problem that something's wrong with me for even trying to suppose or guess that that would be a true thing when he knowing for a fact, it's true and trying to deceive me or gaslight me, um, and telling me that, that's not true. And so then you start to doubt and question your own sanity.
0: That's the impact on gaslighting on you. As you yes. Impact is you start to look inward and say, well, what's wrong with me?
1: Yeah. Why would I think that? You're right. You, you, you wouldn't do that. You love me. You wouldn't want to hurt me. Um, and then somewhere inside going, but that is true. Right. And so you have this internal battle of what's real. What's not real. I don't know.
0: And your confidence is affected. For sure. In multiple ways.
1: Yeah. How do I trust anybody, what they say? How do I trust? And so for me, I'll tell you what I learned from this. Obviously, I've been through a lot of counseling and healing at this point, but what I've learned throughout that process is anything that comes to me from any human being, I have to ask myself, does this feel right? Does this feel good? Is this true? Um. And even those things that are said over the pulpit, right? Well-meaning people or even conference things that come over the pulpit. And I have to ask myself, does, does that feel right? Is that true? And I always take those things to God every time. And I say, this doesn't feel right. Or this feels good. Is that right? And I always go by the fruits of how I feel. If I feel peace, if I feel clarity, if I feel love, I know that's good. I know that's right. I know that's true. If I feel shame, if I feel fear, if I feel any type of manipulation in that, I surrender that to God. I'm like, that is not for me. I'm going to surrender that to you. And so people often ask me even today, how do you sit in church knowing your son's gay and being open about this topic with your husband and feel okay And it's because I've been alone for a long time emotionally and God is my source of truth. And so I can sit there and I can hear people say things or, and I have my own personal gauge of if that's true. So I can love all my friends in the LGBT community completely. I can go to church and understand that where they're at, is because of their experience and their understanding. And I can love them completely. And I can sit right here and be okay. And I can fill all of those people in love. And I'm not there because, I don't know, I'm there because of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm there. He's my source. And that's where I go to worship. I worship him. I don't worship a person or a leader, or a policy, or anything but my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's why I can be in those places and be okay.
0: People are going to rewind that part of the podcast, Amy, a few times and listen to that. It's really powerful. On behalf of all of our listeners, you know, we just admire you and the work you've had to do to have a personal relationship with heavenly parents and a savior, because everything around you has disappointed you at times, perhaps as a way to, you know, the institutional side of the church, perhaps at times with a policy or a talk or a local leader or personality and your own good husband over here that you love, but you recognize that he, and so I love what you've been able to do and where you are and then the power that gives you to um, and the good it creates for you and your marriage and in your family and the way your ability to serve others—it's an incredibly mature and advanced. It's just a great place to be. I admire you. I, you know, where you are and and the work you've done to be able to get there and now your ability to help and heal and give perspective to others. And I would—I'm really sorry. Like Joe is holding your hand over here. Sorry for the road you've had to walk to get there, but it's a, where you are is a really remarkable place and your kids and your grandkids and everybody in your life that have you in your life and your ability to give hope and perspective and heal. It's, you know, those are paydays that are happening right now and will happen throughout your life, what you're able to do for other people because of what you've gone through. Um, is that okay if I say that? <laughs>
1: Thank, actually, thanks Richard. I, I also want to say that, um, You've been a prime example for us as a couple and individually. We started listening to your podcast a few years ago and we thought he's doing it like we want to do it. He's our example. You're listening, you're, you're learning new things and you're loving people and you're, you're gathering everybody under your, your Papa Osler wings and you're showing that love. And that's been an example to and that saved us and I just want to say thank you in behalf of all those listeners that never get to sit across this table that that love and that example has changed hearts and that's changed lives including our own we never thought we'd be sitting at Papa Osler's table (laughs) especially not sharing this story um well, you're very, very
0: kind, and I'm honored to bring stories, but it's it's really guests like you, Amy and Joe, that are the heroes of this podcast, that have the courage to come on and share stories, and, and, I, and the healing that those stories, you're healing people right now, both of you, as they listen and they understand and have better principles, and you're giving them hope. There's a lot of hope in this podcast, and a lot of, I call it the hope and de-shaming podcast. I want to rename it sometimes. <laughs> So that's very kind. Thank you, Amy. And um, Joe, just, you know, talk about, uh, if I've got my facts right, you've been married 27 years. Um, The last three, two and a half, three years, you've been Mm -hmm. clear from porn. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of listeners that go, I want to do what Joe did. How did Joe (laughs) do that after 20 years to now be clear from porn?
2: So, yeah, it's not an overnight thing. Um, I think our first experience with like real addiction recovery came, um, in the 2007, 2008 time period. And, um, actually what happened was we went on a trip to Hawaii, uh, with some friends and it was an incredible trip. And, um, which Island Kauai, that yeah, was our first time in Kauai and it was awesome.
0: My kids love Kauai. <laughs> I love the beaches of Maui, but I love the adventure of Kauai.
2: Yeah. But go ahead. so we, um, boy, one night, it was in the early morning, probably, right? Probably right in the middle of the night.
1: Yeah, it was probably like three in the morning. Yeah.
2: And, uh, Amy wakes me up and we start having a conversation where she, um, starts sharing with me like this, um, feeling that, you know, there's stuff to talk about. And, um, and she starts telling me how, I just want you to know that, like, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. and i'm gonna be here for you and um and that allowed me just that idea that i could share those things with her without um without her you know immediately running away um, allowed me to really open up to her and share where i was and this was you know probably eight to 10 years after that first experience with that Bishop. And so we got home from that, uh, trip and we ended up, I went to the Bishop and, um, and there was a member of the stake high council.
1: I think at that point we actually started the church's 12 step. That was the yeah, first thing right. we did.
2: Yeah, we did. We started the church's 12 step, but then there was a member of the stake high council who was a, um, uh, he is a co-founder of an organization called Lifestar and it's a, uh, sexual recovery organization. Um, Todd Olson is his name. Yes. Great, great man.
0: And I think I started to refer the YSAs to that, yeah. to that website. I think I got wind of how good that group was yeah. connecting the
2: right group. So Lifestar, um, they have a pretty in-depth, um, like recovery training, uh, that Yeah. Counseling that's with both the husband and the wife um, and several weeks where you're all together going through and dealing with some, some of these things and then having some separate.
1: It was a, a real education. Yeah. I think more than anything, we, we got really educated about. Sexual addiction and pornography.
2: Yeah, we had no idea. Like, I had no idea. It was all just shocking to me. And um, so we started a, a, another 12 step program at that point uh, called SA sexual Sexaholics Anonymous. I don't
1: think we got there yet. I
2: did. Yeah, we did. Or you. Yeah, you didn't. I did um, at the same time that we were doing Lifestar. And so I started attending these meetings. And it was funny because I would sit in this room and we would have this whole big circle, maybe 30, 40 guys. And some of these guys, like, This is pretty hard stuff like, you know, strip clubs, uh, lots of adult establishments, um, prostitutes, um, you know, just really heavy stuff. And I'm sitting in this room going, well, you know, I've looked at some online porn and I'm kind of feeling like I don't necessarily belong here. But um, as I got to know guys there, the beautiful thing about that recovery program um, is that some of the most tender experiences I've had and just the most vulnerable raw conversations are with these men where we're all in a room together and feel safe with each other. Um, we're all in the same boat and we're all just trying our best to figure this out. And, uh, so there was some accountability there, having a sponsor and working the 12 steps. And that was really helpful. Like that was all very helpful to me. Um, but it didn't take the compulsion away. So the compulsion was still there and there were still cycles for me. They may be further apart, but there were still cycles. And, um, and I, I learned a lot. Like Amy says, there was a, it was a big education. One of the things that I learned was about like not having connection, this misconnection, connecting with pornography instead of connecting with my wife, connecting with other people. I, I, I became this person that, wasn't very capable of having relationships with people. It was very surface level relationships, never deep. I never got into deep stuff because it scared me to death. And so, um, so it, it kept coming and it was such a struggle. And um, about 2000 and well, uh, was it 2016? Mm, was no, t- yeah. In 2016, we took a trip to Italy. And uh, in the fall, and it was a beautiful trip, amazing. I mean, we just had the best time ever. And one of the things that we learned there um, on this trip, it was kind of an educational trip, and they taught and it was religious. And so they were talking about, um, you know, this division that happened in the Catholic Church between um, the Western, you know, Roman Catholics and the Eastern Greek Orthodox. And we learned so much about how those two groups separated and really viewed god and sexuality and all of these things in very different ways and the western roman catholic tradition really latched on to um yeah the the word of god and judgment where the other one was more the mercy and and so it was it was the first time that I was like oh so some of this is cultural like that we're we're doing this to ourselves with just the way that we treat and talk about it. And so um, that was eye opening and that was helpful and during that trip Amy and I were able to have an experience where she was able to open up to me and I for the first time could acknowledge and recognize like how lonely this was for her and how how much of an impact this had on her in a way like I didn't want to have those tough conversations with her. Cause I felt like they were always confrontational and fighting and oh, that it was hurting you. yeah. Shaming and so, you. right. And so, yeah, I had such shame in my, you know, I had so much shame. I couldn't deal with it. And so we had this experience that we were able to go pretty deep and I was, uh, I was able to just see things that I hadn't even recognized or noticed. So fast forward about seven or eight months, maybe six months. Um, to the spring of 2016 and I'm searching like crazy and I'm, we're attending at this time, Amy's probably attending 12 steps, aren't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's 12 step recovery for, uh, for the spouse, um, that's dealing with betrayal trauma and then there's recovery for the addict. And so we're going to these meetings, you know, weekly and I've got a sponsor and I'm working the twelve steps and all these things. I'm learning lots of things and I'm I feel like I'm growing, I'm progressing, but I but the compulsion's still there. Like it's still there. And um and I'm searching like crazy. Like I just want in the worst way to figure out what's wrong with me. Why can't I kick this?
1: I'm gonna interject really quickly and let you finish the rest of the story because this part's important. Um, About this time, probably right before Italy, um, we had gone to a counselor because I was done. This is one of those times when you said, yeah.
0: Not suicide.
1: No, (laughs) marriage. Marriage. I'd been up and down this roller coaster ride with him for so long that I honestly couldn't see myself doing this much longer. I felt like emotionally completely so thinned out that there wasn't much left for me. And we went to a counselor and I said to her, I'm in a place that I'm working on me. I've been working on me for a while and I've actually let go of him. I've detached myself with compassion. I love him. I'll always love him. I adore him, but I can't do this anymore. And she turned to Joe at that point, and she said, when I see that look in a woman's eye, and she tells me she's done, you better believe she's telling the truth. And she looked at Joe and said, if you don't fight for this woman, you're going to lose her. And at that point, my roller coaster ride of this, had just worn on my mental and emotional ability to not live in trauma. And I want to explain what trauma is really quickly before Joe shares the really great part of his story. Trauma is you find yourself, it's a physical effect and a mental effect. Anything can trigger trauma. Let's say I'm in a grocery store and I notice that Joe's looking at somebody across the way. Immediately that trauma tells me I'm not safe. Something's, I'm in danger, right? Like he's looking for somebody else. That abandonment issue comes up, that, that fear comes up, and all of a sudden my chest gets heavy. My throat feels like it's closing off and tears start coming out of my eyes, and the only thing I can think is I need to leave. I need to get out. And it's almost like this really like primal feeling of your heart's racing. I need to leave. Like, I don't, I can't be by you. I can't be with you. I am fearing for my very life right now. I need to get out of here. And some people say, is that a panic attack? Whatever. Trauma can last a long time. I could be in that place for days where I'm in a downward spiral and it's only getting darker and blacker. And emotionally it takes everything that you have to find a safe place. And yet during those trauma moments, I would still have to wake up, put a half smile on my face, make breakfast for my kids, hug them, read scriptures with them as tears were rolling down my cheeks wow. and kiss them goodbye to school or wherever they're going. And I would go up in my room and lay in my bed and sob uncontrollably. And the only thought in my head is, I can't stay. I have to leave. I can't be with him. I can't stay with him. And the trauma is so intense and so real that it's taken a lot of different emotional therapies and different therapies that I still deal with trauma. We were at a counselor Wednesday talking about how to help me with my trauma. My trauma increased when he was actually safer and when he got better, or you say real recovery, when he stopped looking and he was sober, my trauma increased because all of those years of me packing it down and pushing it to a side and those trauma moments, it finally, like, he's a safe enough place, maybe, possibly, that that trauma returned tenfold, that it really... And yeah. those those there were times then that I had suicidal thoughts that I'd never had before.
0: So honest. And I assume for... We've done one podcast of a woman who finally ended the marriage over pornography. So I'm speaking for you, but I'm assuming you have great empathy for women that do step away because you've known how... This isn't a podcast, perhaps your story isn't, it gives hope to those that want to make it work, but I, I would assume you have um, a lot of understanding for women that feel like I've got to end this marriage.
1: Sure. Absolutely. I, my Wednesday night group, there are so many, they're probably the most courageous women I've ever met in my life. Um, and some for their safety of their lives, their children, for their mental health, they do need to separate because their husband isn't finding any kind of recovery. And it's really hard yeah. to stay in a place of any abuse kind of recovery like
0: that. Just addiction. Any kind of it.
1: Yeah. When there's no sign of recovery or hope there's, it takes its toll
0: It's on interesting You talked about Joe getting better, actually, at least to maybe this will pass it added to your trauma. And maybe it's because your heart, you knew you could open your heart up, but that's, it's sort of like that. It was locked up behind a vault and
1: For sure protected it
0: from arrows. And now and are opening it back up, but you're naturally, your instinct is to protect yourself.
1: I had to be strong, right? Like I had to hold it together and I had to hold him. And when he started getting better, he became a place that maybe he could hold me. Um, I had a dream around this time and in that dream i was facing joe but his back was to me and my hands were opened out almost like like a handing out like give me right and i was pleading with him to turn around please please turn around i need you to turn around and it was almost like a metaphor of my life with him like please turn around and see me please turn around and be with me but his back was to me and finally I turned around and all six of my children from oldest to youngest were standing there with their hands outstretched to me, waiting for me to turn around. And I think that was my turning point that, um, I need to be available to them and not that I wasn't, but I wasn't completely because I was waiting And that's the point that I decided I need to, I need to heal me. I need to heal me. And I remember that sincere prayer about that time turning to heavenly father and my mother in heaven and saying, I need you to heal me. I can't, I can't breathe again. I need you to heal me. And this time uh, the, the answer came to me, you will be healed but this one's going to be a journey. Mm. This time it's going to be a journey. And can you stay?
0: And is it correct to say that even, and I don't want to add to Joe's burden here. Is it correct to say that even though Joe is the source of this, Joe can't be the way and he solves it. He's a way, you know, he's clean now. He can't completely heal you that we, the savior has to heal all of us.
1: Absolutely.
0: And that, you know, I can be my wife's husband but I can't be my wife's savior.
1: Absolutely. And, um, that's the only way (laughs) I've made it this long, but I continue to find healing through my savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's why the next part of Joe's story is so impactful.
2: Well, a couple of things I just want to mention as, as we're talking about this, um, a couple of key concepts that I really, um, experienced and learned firsthand through addiction recovery was uh, and especially through the 12-step 12-step program is that this concept of surrender which was so foreign to me because I had been fighting so hard to try to do this on my own to kick this to white knuckle it and this concept of surrender of giving up the fight of surrendering your will to god and allowing God to be in charge um, that that was that was really, um, a really difficult concept to, to wrap my head around, but once I was able to begin to understand that it really helped. Um, and then there was another, I, so I, I read a book. It's just a small book that, uh, somebody from, uh, sexaholics anonymous wrote when they were in good recovery. And it was called sitting in a rowboat, throwing marbles at a battleship. And, um, one of the concepts or one of the things that he talked about in there that just really affected me and and kind of made me recognize how true it was. He, he said, repentance from sin is not the same as recovery from addiction. They're related, but they're not the same. And when I understood that, because here's the thing is I, I'd repented a thousand times. I was sincere every single time. And yet it kept coming back and I couldn't shake it. And every time I would feel so horrible that I had just committed this awful sin and all those sins were coming back to me. And I just couldn't live with myself. And the fact that I could understand this concept that repentance from sin is not the same as a recovery from addiction, recovery from addiction. You can be repentant, but recovery from addiction is something totally different. So, in the spring of 2016, um, I, I, I love to study. I love to learn. And a guy that I really admire is Wayne Dyer and he's written, I don't know, 40, 50 books, self-help type of books. Well, he did a movie, um, that's available on YouTube for free. Anyone can find it. If you just type in Wayne Dyer, the shift, and the awesome thing about this movie, The Shift, I, I highly recommend it to anybody because it, it really taught me some pretty valuable lessons. One of the things that it talked about in there, he, he teaches that the ego begins to tell us three things about ourselves. He says, we, we are what we have, we are what we do, and we are what people think about us. So our value becomes based on these three things. And he says, the shift happens when we realize that that's not true. That's not the case. Our worth is set. It's this whole idea. It's the same thing that Amy came up with. Our worth is set and everything's an experience. And so when we base our lives on this idea that we are what we have, what we do and what people think about us, then it's all external. And there was something very powerful in that for me. And in that movie, he brought up uh, an, a name of, a, of an ancient Chinese um, text called the, the Tao Te Ching, it's spelled T-A-O-T-I or T-E-C-H-I-N-G. Um, and it was written by a, a guy named Lao Tzu. It's 25 years, 2,500 years old. So 500 years before Christ. And he talked about the Tao Te Ching. So I looked it up and, and Wayne Dyer had recently written a book about it. And the book title is change your thoughts, change your life. And for whatever reason, um, and Amy can attest to this, I've never been a yard worker. I don't enjoy it. I've always left that up to her. And we have a sizable yard. We have a half acre and it's loaded. I mean, there's all sorts of plants and vegetation and she loves it. And it's been her solace for a long time.
1: Yeah, I would say that's, I go to the dirt. I go to the earth to find my solace and my garden and my flowers and my vegetables for sure.
2: So I hadn't, uh, I hadn't never done that, but for some reason, for whatever reason, I got this book on audible. And, um, I, I think I know actually why I, in the movie, the shift, there's a part where, um, there's the guy that owns this big resort and he, he ends up being a caretaker, uh, to this, you know, this little, um, uh, garden. nursery or garden or something. And so anyway, it got me out connecting with nature. And so here I am in our, in our backyard and I'm trimming these rose bushes and I'm listening to the, to the Tao Te Ching. And this happens over several weeks um, of listening to this and each it's got 81 verses and each verse kind of talks about um, this, the the way to, um, to peace and integrity and real surrender, just true surrender. So I'm listening to the Tao Te Ching. So in his book, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, he reads the verse from the Tao Te Ching, and then he expounds upon it and says, here's what I've learned from it. Here's what I take from it. And going through this process of learning this and listening to this, it started to really heal my heart. And there was a point there where, and this is like, it's the most spiritual experience that I've ever had in my life. And I've had some spiritual experiences, don't get me wrong, but I'm trimming rose bushes. It's on a Saturday afternoon. Nice, bright, sunny Saturday. And this overwhelming feeling comes upon me. And it's God speaking to me, to my heart, and telling me, that he loves me unconditionally. That he accepts me fully where I am right now. And that he's with me in this moment and in every moment. And I'm made whole through his love and just this overwhelming sense of his love and of that I don't have to keep trying to earn his love, and his belonging, that it's already there. And in that moment, my entire life changed. And all of those years of self-loathing, all of that shame came washing, washing off me. And instantly, I just felt this divine love and presence and I the compulsion was gone it was that simple I think it took an experience like that for me because I was so full of shame and self-loathing I just kept beating myself up over and over and I was always told read your scriptures, pray, attend your meetings, go to the temple. Amy and I went to the temple every week. I read my scriptures all the time. I prayed so sincerely. Those things were helpful and important, but that's not what did it for me. What did it for me was being able to recognize my worth with God. And so when we talk about shame, it's really important to understand how toxic it is because for decades of my life, it controlled every aspect of it. And after that experience, I started learning some other really cool things. I read a book called the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. And that book helped me understand that like I had been living my whole life worrying about things in the past that I had done or that had happened to me and fearing the future. And what that was going to look like. And Eckhart Tolle, um, he talks about surrendering the ego and ego creates a false mind made self that creates doubt and suffering. And one of the, one of the beautiful things he talks about, he says to the ego, only past and future are important. The ego is always concerned with keeping the past alive because without it, who are you? it constantly projects itself into the future to ensure its future survival and seeks to release or fulfillment there. So this, this concept of, of like getting outside of my own brain and just becoming present and accepting, um, the past for what it is and not fearing the future or worrying so much about the future, but worrying about now, cause it's the only moment that I have. And so those were concepts that were just really helpful to me. But that was that was kind of my experience. That was and and that was two and a half years ago, I guess. And I, I don't have a day that goes by that I mean I'm as happy as I can imagine ever being.
0: What you've shared with us is just one of the sacred moments on this podcast. Um, behalf of our listeners to both of you, just The things you're teaching and the principles you're sharing and the things you've learned and the personal revelation you received is so helpful. Um, i thought of Naaman for some reason, as you were talking about. Um, Naaman, who is the—all you Bible scholars, I won't quite get this right, but Naaman, this is in King—I think it's in— um, Second Kings, he has I can't remember what his physical ailment is, but he's told to go to Naaman's told to go to the Jordan River, I believe, and and dip himself seven times. And um, after six dips, nothing happened, and and then he exercised faith and dipped the seventh time, and he was healed. And our institute teacher, when he taught this, he said, do you think it was the, seven dip, the seventh dip that healed him or was it the combination of all the dips? And so I think of that and your story of being healed by the rose bushes. And I, the thought came to my mind, it's all that you've done that represented six prior. <laughs> all the work you did made that moment happen. It couldn't have happened on its own without all the work you've done, both of you, that represented, and those weren't just little dips, those were like decades, (laughs) (laughs) representing each of those dips, and that allowed that moment of healing, because you did everything you knew how to do. Think of all the, when you're just talking about the classes you've took, the therapists you've been to, the discussions you've had, the beautiful moments, the painful moments. It's a beautiful love story, and it's, it's a hard story, but... I just love, and I love that you receive personal revelation um, by reading stuff that's not on the church shelf. I think that's what our church leaders teach, that we don't have, you know, that there's truth everywhere and answers to prayers everywhere. And so I love that story and what you read and how it, and how you worked hard and then how you were healed and fundamentally changed. And that's just a sacred moment you've shared with us. And, I wish our listeners could see the two of these two together. The the you know, this is a love story, the hand holding, the looking, the not interrupting each other, the this is a beautiful love story, twenty-seven years of marriage. Um I'm just so deeply touched. Talk about um have do your kids know this story? Or do you just keep this private?
1: You know what? Actually, um little bits here and there joe has shared with our teenage boys as they struggled with pornography and let him know about his struggle with pornography and then um two months ago we actually sat down all of our children and my parents around the kitchen table and we shared our story and joe shared his from the time he was a boy um up until the current day and then i shared my story um
0: So let me just get this straight. Two years ago, wait, two months, two Two months months ago, you've got six kids and their spouses spouses and your parents, Mm -hmm. and you're going to talk about pornography, Joe's pornography in front of everybody. Isn't that great?
1: Everybody. (laughs) Let's just get it out there. Yeah. I think there was a part of me that thought if my son at some point has to be brave enough and come out with some pretty tender, honest transparency of himself, can't we do the same? Can't we be transparent and put our vulnerabilities out there in hopes that this is helpful and healing to anybody? Um, There's one experience that came to my mind that I wanted to share just really quickly before I um, share part of my story when I shared with the kids. Um, I was called to be Relief Society president. Of a really amazing ward that had seventy-eight apartment units, hundred and seventy-eight apartment units. It had wow. a very large um, farming area, and then it had these homes, anywhere from three hundred thousand to million-dollar homes. Um, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. But when I was called. Joe had his recommend taken away at that time. And so for a year, I went to the temple by myself every week. And um, it was really hard not to ask him for a blessing when I needed it the most. And because I didn't want to jeopardize Joe's integrity, I remember going to my dad one time saying, Joe's busy at work. Uh, You know, what am I going to say? Can you give me a blessing? And my, my dad gave me a tender blessing, but um, I remember that year ministering to so many women. There were 38 single moms. And going into their houses and their apartments and being able to actually feel with them and feeling pretty alone myself and being able to love them to cry with them, to mourn with them, to celebrate with them—I mean, I was doing twenty-two food orders every couple of weeks. Wow! Um, there was a real need, and for some of these women to say, "You have it all—you live in this big house, and you have this husband—and—and and to not say a word, but to put my arms around them—and I just want to say, that the Savior." Was there at every moment with me, giving me strength and helping me put his arms around them. And I felt that when I shared my story with the kids and my boys who are men now. After we shared our story, my boys coming up and putting their, in their 20s, mm-hmm, putting their arms around me and sobbing and mourning with me and saying, Mom, why didn't you tell us? Why, did, why didn't you let us share that burden? Why, didn, why didn't you tell us you were in so much pain for so long? And I said, well, honey, the pain's still there. And I'm still working on trauma. I'm still, I still have lots of trauma. And them just holding me was just one of those really special moments of them understanding and me looking at their wives and saying, boys, honesty, transparency is so important. We can handle just about anything as long as you're honest, as long as you're transparent with us. You sing just a little bit of the pain I have. I hope that you will give that to your wives. Um, And I think that's the most important part for me is honesty. Because when you have true honesty, you can trust somebody. You can trust that what they're telling you is right. And so that's been part of my journey of um, learning what, Forgiveness and trust are two very different things. I forgave Joe so many times. But that doesn't mean that I could trust him. And so him now being in a place that he's more emotionally available, that I can start looking when I crack that door open of vulnerability and he starts to see my pain and my trauma come out. It used to really scare him and he would get defensive or nervous. And as soon as I saw that panicked look on his face, I shut that door really fast. Like, nope, nope, (laughs) it's not okay. And now he's really learning to sit with my pain like I sat with his for so long. He's learning what it's like to hold someone in their pain and not have to fix it but just to hold. And I think that's what ministering really means.
0: You've said some really good lines I've written to Hold someone in their pain and not fix it or not be able to fix it. You said forgiveness and trust are two different things. Joe earlier said repentance from sin is not the same as recovery from addiction. I think you said that. There's just so many wonderful, insightful things. Um, how did you feel when you talked to your whole family about your pornography, Joe? That's not probably what you thought would be part of your life journey.
1: These sweet new daughter-in-laws yeah. looking at us like, "What have we You've married got into?" Your <laughs> wife's
0: parents there. You've, I mean, what's that like for you? And <laughs> you know, and how has that changed your relationship
2: with your kids? Yeah. Um, so. I think something that I've learned over time with this is that most people struggle in one way or another with some form of pornography at some level. Um, the statistics will bear out that pretty much most of our kids are going to experience it in some form. And so it's more of a, not if, but when, and the thing about shame, um, is that it lives in the dark and it's, you know, it's like, um, black mold. If you, if you picture black mold, I mean, it loves the dark, damp, cold places. And the second that you shed some light on shame, it goes away. It changes it. It, it evaporates. And there was, um, my first sponsor, um, was a man that had been through just, an incredible journey of uh, deep, deep addiction, sexual addiction. And he and his wife were so public and open about it. I just admired that like crazy because I knew that how difficult that was to do, but I also knew how helpful it was to me to actually, and it was like Amy said about that story of the couple that showed up on a fifth Sunday in our ward in Heber and and shared that experience. Like those were the things that gave me hope that I could, I could, if they could do it, I could do it. And the thing that I ended up saying to myself in those times is, I don't know how, I don't know when, but it gives me hope that I can figure this out and I'm never going to quit trying. So however many times i fell, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying. So today I, I share my story a lot. And uh, so when when we sat down with you and we were talking about, you know, you, you had asked us if we'd be willing to share. Um, for me, it was a no brainer. It's, it's giving back. It's, it's hopefully helping someone else in our shoes to have that hope to keep going. And, um, and our kids were all great. They're so tender. I've, I've learned over time that the more vulnerable that you're willing to be with somebody, it helps open the door for them to be more vulnerable with you. And
0: Isn't that a powerful principle? I'm thinking if I'm your kid, if I'm 28 and I'm Joe and Amy's kid, I could talk to, I don't think they'd probably call you Joe and Amy. They'd probably call you <laughs> mom and dad or your nicknames. I'm thinking I can talk to you about anything. Um, All the different things that I might be working on that come my way, I know mom and dad are safe. And I know they can handle it. And so I, that's one of the beauties of, and I think the future paydays of your situation is kids and grandkids and the things that, you know, the relationships that, and the understanding and the de-shaming. So why I'm sure you'd never invite anybody to walk this road. I think there's incredible paydays um, that are happening now and will continue to happen in your family because of this journey.
2: Yeah, years ago, Amy started on Sunday afternoons having little discussions with the family and and, and each I kid actually, was- res-
1: I actually started right after I worked with the young men because <laughs> yeah, in the go. duty to God, it talks about sharing and how that how important that is. And so, and instead of giving a family home evening lesson or something, it turned into everybody giving their own lesson so that I could see where my kids were at What were they feeling? What did they understand about the gospel? So Sunday afternoons became, Hey, everybody prepare a thought, prepare a lesson, prepare anything and come ready to share. And we also got part of that from being in a 12 step program. When you share, um, you don't interrupt somebody when they're sharing, you allow them to share and give them the floor. And then if there's a discussion afterwards, you can have that. But I loved that concept of giving my kids the floor and letting them share about anything that helped me to see where they're at, maybe with their testimony, with friends, with mentally or emotionally. And um, also helped me to know where somebody's at with shame, because if somebody's pulling back, isolating, disconnecting, I know that shame's there. And when someone feels more open and, you know, maybe somebody's shy, I'm not saying that that person has a lot of shame, but it's a pretty good indicator that when somebody is not able to connect um, and they isolate or pull away or even become defensive, that there's some kind of hurt, pain and shame going on there. So it was a helpful way for our family to, share. And it's changed quite a bit. In fact, now that they're older, this Sam gets to share whatever he wants, a story from the friend, because that's where he's at, but we'll share a podcast of yours. And we'll say, everybody listen to this podcast and Sunday, we're going to share what we learned or what we felt from it.
2: Can have a discussion.
1: Yeah. And our circle has gotten bigger where we invite other close family and friends. And sometimes a lot of my family has shown up and they said, I'm surprised about the things we're able to talk to about in your house that we would never be able to talk about in our house. And I'm surprised how my kids have shared. That's cool. While being in your home. It's a safe place. We safe have place. we have a rainbow flag in our front driveway <laughs> on a very tall flagpole. <laughs> Ours is a safe home for anybody. Every all are welcome in the Pearson home.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. We just have tried to create an atmosphere and that that's, it's what she said. It's the 12 step, you know, that idea of being able to just share and be vulnerable and, and take the judgment out of it. So if, if somebody it's whatever your experience is, that's your experience. And, and we should honor that. And we should, you know, just listen and, and what, what you do, Richard, what Amy said earlier, like it's really been helpful to us to learn how to just listen, learn and love people. It's that simple.
0: I'm thinking we should all go to the 12 step class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things you actually,
1: le- <laughs> everybody would benefit from yeah. thinking the,
0: 12 step. the things you've learned on your journey are really wonderful things that you've learned that apply to so many different parts of life.
1: The 12 step is actually the atonement in action. Yeah, it really is. It's recognizing that you're powerless, that there's a power greater than you, that you can write out all the things that you have a responsibility for. You go to those people and you,
2: well, and be willing to turn your life over to a the will and care
1: of God. That's, that's the 12 step being, being willing to turn your life and care over to the power of your higher power, your God, whoever that is. But I actually, when um, we were kind of having some difficulties in our extended family, I gave my mom, there's one called healing, through Christ. And it's the 12 step program. You can get it on Amazon. It's a great book. I bought one and gave it to my mom and my mom's so cute. She's like, I believe in the power of the 12 step program.
0: <laughs> your mom is really awesome. She's
1: so great, but she went through the whole thing. And I
0: met your grandmother. I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. My grandma's still alive too. She's a fiery one too, but the 12 step program I would recommend to anyone. In fact, when I was in the Relief Society, um, when I was really excited President, I took many of people to twelve step and sat with them in those meetings. And I will tell you those are probably some of the most sacred spiritual meetings I've ever been to in my life. And anybody that's ever been to a twelve step meeting will say the same. They are the secret power spiritual place, right, Joe? Like, you can't Absolutely. be in such a sacred place with people being as vulnerable and honest and in that much pain, the savior is there. The savior is right there.
2: It's it's my favorite meeting of the week, usually. I mean, it's you know, I wish Elder's quorum could be that vulnerable.
1: The savior is right there, holding those who have been marginalized, those who feel like they're on the outskirts, those who feel like they don't belong, those who feel like they've sinned, those who are Wracked with addiction and pain, he's there.
0: Are you willing to speak towards for Sunday's firesides um,
2: YSA event?
1: Listen to Joe. He immediately <laughs> says yes Absolutely. without even looking at me. No, it's it's
2: it's because of uh, again. It's just going back and and just how that helped us to yes. see people with uh, their experiences. It's just I, I would
0: have loved to have you come. You do a fifth Sunday for our YSAs. If I had heard this podcast, I would have found you and said, you have to speak to my YSAs. And,
2: and just to be clear, like we don't have all the answers. We're still working every day to figure things out for us. So I don't want it to, to sound like, like we, we got, got, got figured it figured out. out. Okay. We right. don't, but we, we have learned a lot of valuable lessons. There are a ton of resources. Anybody that wants to just... Ask like, what's a first step for me? Maybe somebody that's struggling with pornography and doesn't know what to do, reach out. Like, I absolutely will put you. I, I will. I will be there, right there with you. I'll take you to meetings. I will help you learn and get you in front of people that are going to help. And just, you know, there, it, it's a process. This is not when I when we first learned of recovery. I, I thought, oh, great, we'll go and get this figured out, and next month we'll be good. <laughs> Um, it's not like that, but it's, it's a beautiful place. And, um, and there's so many wonderful men and women that have just absolutely changed their lives.
1: Yeah. And, and the SAL lifeline, is it lifeline? Yeah. They, they actually have meetings Real. online. So those people that aren't ready to go and face people or, in, or a that meeting, aren't in areas where they have, yeah. Meetings. Or areas you can go and they have online meetings for women and men, because the women's is very different from the men's. I mean, clearly ours is very much a place of healing and working on ourselves, working on um, finding ourselves again.
0: Um, If people want to find Joe and Amy Pearson, I'm going to spell their last name, P-I-E-R-S-O-N. So you could message Joe, J-O-E, Pearson and Amy A M Y, P I E R S O N on Facebook. They'll check their Facebook messages. They're both on Facebook and check those message requests you sometimes get from people you're not connected with. And um, I just want to read Joey's Instagram post. So Joey, um, this Instagram post, he's a senior at which high school? Skyridge. Skyridge. He's Lehigh. on Seminary Council, that's in Utah County. Um I've been, I've been waiting to make this post for a while now. Here are a few things I want you to know about me. My name is Joey Pearson. He's got him numbered, as you know. Yeah. Number two, my heavenly parents are my rock. Number three, I literally love everybody in all caps so much. And number four, I'm always here for you if you need a friend. Number five, I'm gay. I always have been and I always will be, and that's an eternal truth. Number six, I rely on my Savior, Jesus Christ, for for daily breath. And then he goes on, I want everyone to know that you are loved. Your worth is set, um, and everything is an experience. And I won't read the whole post, and maybe Joey will come and join you two on the podcast, mm-hmm. and you'll talk about Joey being gay and raising a gay son and just how you're keeping the family circle together, but... I love this kid of yours that's got 610 likes and 336 comments.
1: All positive comments. All.
0: Po- have you read those, mom? Every oh, yeah.
1: single one. And I cried through every single
0: It's pretty scary to have your son <laughs> post on Instagram that he's gay.
1: Yeah. And we were with um, <laughs> actually George and Allison. and um,
2: Well, just a group of, just a group. of allies uh, to Peculiar. the Peculiar. We yeah. were with
1: Peculiar that night. And as I read it out loud at the table and I just cried out loud and, um, others cried with me and, um,
2: there was a gay couple sitting next to us and he just teared up and started.
1: It was a sacred moment for us because I knew what this meant for my son and what it meant.
2: What did he say to you?
1: I wish I had a mom like you.
2: That's a,
0: it's pretty cool. And to just for Joey to know that everybody loves him, if they know this part about Joey, you know how important that is for a gay Latter-day Saint to know that we that he can feel love. He's felt that obviously from the family circle, and so that's you know. Um, any final things we need to wrap up? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think our listeners will stay right to the end because everything you share is so helpful. Um, let's go, Joe first, and then Amy. Any final things you'd like to share with
2: us, Joe? Um, yeah, I, I think what I would say is just the, the most profound lesson that I've learned in my life is, is that, um, my responsibility is to love. I don't have to judge. I don't have to judge myself and I don't have to judge others. I, I believe that God gives us an internal compass. And if we will follow that, follow our hearts and, um, and be true to ourselves, be true to who we are inside. Um, it's all going to be okay. Our worth is said. Everything's an experience.
1: And I think I'll end um, by reaching out to women um, and let them know that they are not alone. The path they may be walking may feel very alone, emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, but I hope that you would reach out and that's the hardest part is to find somebody safe to reach out to. Um, But I love you and the savior loves you. And um, I think I just want to share that my savior, Jesus Christ is my rock, my salvation, my friend, my redeemer. And um, he's the only way that I'm still sitting here with a smile on my face and joy in my heart. And I love him. And I love my husband with all of my heart. He is my best friend. There is hope. There is healing. Your worth is set and everything is an experience.
0: Thank you, Joe and Amy. I'm reminded of how this podcast came about. We were just visiting on a Sunday afternoon here Um, Your family was here and you just casually said, I'm addicted to porn. (laughs) And I, it took me about 30 seconds, but I said, Joe, just, you know, people don't usually just share that. And I don't know if you said addicted to porn or been working on porn. And then we visited after, and that's how this whole podcast came together. As I said, Joe, would you be willing to talk about this? And Amy, because um, this needs to be talked about. And they, they both just said, yeah. We'd love to, and they've done such a great job. And you're both heroic. I know you don't want to take on that label, and you, I don't try to see who's more heroic than the other person. And I just think this is a beautiful love story. And and I'm worried on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for sharing it. We love you, and we love who you are, and and we love the example you're setting. And the you're really the wounded healer is a frequent quote here because you have both been wounded. Um, but you're both whole and your worth is set. And now you're able to help so many other people because, you know, this desert and you can lead so many people out of deserts with this podcast and what you're doing in your work and, and with Joey and the LGBT community and so many different people, what you did, you know, in your release society assignment and how you've served in so many different ways. So thank you, Joe and Amy Pearson for joining us on another episode of listen, learn and love. And thank you, our listeners for listening.